following podcast is sponsored in part by the Blue Ridge Institute for Theological Education and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about these institutions, please visit their websites at bright-va.org. That's B-R-I-T-E-V-A.org or bts.education. And now, here is Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism. Well, hello again, friends, and welcome to another edition of Larger for Life. I'm your host, one of your co-hosts, Derek Brott from Aliceville, Alabama, and I'm joined by the coach, Matt Adams from Dillon. Good day. You know, it's it's funny that you bring up the coaching uh, because we just wrapped up an undefeated soccer season here in Dillon, South Carolina. We were the First Presbyterian Church Saints, and my son was the high uh, goal scorer of the season for our region, and so I feel like a champion today, Derek. Look I feel like you, a man. champion. Look at you, unbelievable! You'll be you'll be coaching at Clemson any day, and then the best mustache in the PCA, maybe even in Nay Park, Stephen Spinnenweber, Jacksonville. Well, you're very kind, and not to take anything away from you know, your son there, Matt, a little Pele that he is, but saying that we got first place and had an undefeated season in soccer is like saying we got first place in a watching paint dry contest to my ears. That's what that sounds like, just listen, to trigger all of our soccer fans. Listen, commie kickball is the best sport in the world, okay? Um I've got books on the Premier League over in the United Kingdom. I I read them often. Listen, we can talk soccer, football later on. But listen, it's a big deal for me to be an undefeated coach, champion coach for six to seven-year-old Dillon County soccer. Okay? Don't take it away from me. Good man, coach. So, you may be wondering then where – our other two co-hosts are Sean Morris and Nick Bullock. Well, both of them have been sent pink slips. They are no longer a part of the show. It's now the three amigos. They've been let go. They just don't know that yet. They'll know when this recording is uploaded. Um, in all reality, Sean is sick, air quotes, sick. He's got the stomach bug. That's not even a real thing. And Nick Bullock we we just didn't tell him we were recording. So um, he'll find out that he missed this episode. So today we are studying questions 31 and 32 of the larger catechism. Question 31 asks, with whom was the covenant of grace made? The answer is the covenant of grace was, was made with Christ as the second Adam and in him all the elect as his seed. Very foundational question. Matt, why don't you kick us off and and, uh, explain this for us? I appreciate that, Uh, Derek. I hope that your corner kick straight to me will be headed into the goal for a wonderful worldie of a uh, soccer goal leading to a championship here. I I don't know anything you just said. Um, I watch real sports. Oh, sorry. Comic kickball is a real sport, unlike cheerleading. Okay. Um, no, just let's, you know, getting back on track. Uh, we are moving away now from the covenant of works 
to the covenant of grace. You know, for the past number of episodes, we have been talking about sin all the way back at question 24. We have talked about sinfulness of man, uh, inherited sinfulness because our first parents, Adam and Eve, uh, were guilty of transgressing the law there in the Garden of Eden. We've talked about the punishment, the consequences of sin, all of that coming or stemming from uh, the transgression of the covenant of works. And so if we stand in the creation narrative of Genesis 1 and 2 and now moving into 3, we find our first parents, Adam and Eve, which now as our federal head includes us, guilty, vile, helpless, right? We, we look upon the law of God. We recognize that we've transgressed it. We are guilty. And at the same time, we have fallen short of his standard, okay? Um, and, and so we're guilty, vile, helpless. In and of ourselves, we cannot save ourselves. Uh, therefore, we have to look outside of ourselves for uh, salvation to have this right standing with God again. And that's where the covenant of work, our covenant of grace comes into play because we have that first proclamation of the gospel in Genesis 3.15 where God has talked about the consequences to Satan in the form of a serpent. On your belly you shall go. Uh, he talks about the consequences to Adam and Eve. Um, you know, Eve will uh, desire headship over her husband. Um, she will uh, bear children in much pain. Adam will have to work the ground and it will be laborsome. It will be hard. Uh, there will be death for Adam and Eve. Um, but the good news of Genesis 3 starts there in 15, where we have the first proclamation of the gospel again, that there will be one who will come from the seed of the woman who will be bruised by the strike of Satan, but he will crush the head of the serpent. He will defeat Satan. And of course, that covenant of grace, all the way back in Genesis 3, points us to the person and work of Jesus, that we have the seed of the woman being born. It's Christmas season. This is the Christmas story. The seed of the woman being born. The serpent strikes and bruises the heel of the Savior because he dies on the cross, uh, and yet he crushes the head of the serpent as he's risen from the grave victoriously and ascends on high. And so this covenant of grace forces us to look outside of ourselves for salvation, look outside of ourselves for restoration in sweet communion with the Lord. Um, Y'all want to add anything to that uh, initial thought before we dive into this question anymore, talking about just the covenant of grace being established for us? Yeah, the, the covenant of grace is is made with the Lord Jesus Christ as the second Adam. And whenever you hear that language of second Adam, your mind should really go to uh, the book of Romans, Romans chapter five. And this is one of the proof, te proof texts that we have in the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses 
brought justification. So the covenant of grace is made with Jesus Christ, but not merely as a private individual, just as it wasn't made with the first Adam as a private individual, but as a federal representative. And this is the difference though. Adam, the first Adam, was the federal representative of all mankind. But as this catechism question tells us, Jesus Christ is not a second Adam for all mankind indiscriminately, which we can talk about here with the, I would say majority understanding among evangelicals, which is uh, unlimited atonement. The L in TULIP, what we believe is limited atonement. And the reason that we believe that is because the covenant of grace was made with Jesus Christ, not as a representative of all humanity indiscriminately, but for his elect as his seed, particularly. So we believe in particular redemption, particular and limited atonement. Derek, any thoughts here? Uh, yeah, well, I think this goes back to something that we may have talked about before, but the question sometimes come up, comes up in theological discussion of whether or not um, the covenant of works is still active. And um, so I'm one who'd say, yes, that the covenant with Adam is not necessarily totally abrogated, right? You're either in a, a relationship of a covenant of works or in a covenant of grace. And so Christ as a public figure um, essentially offers the opportunity if you want to come to God by grace, right? I mean, that's um, otherwise you're still an Adam and you're still um, seeking to be uh, to gain eternal life by perfect, perpetual, and personal obedience. So um, that I think it's important to hold both of those. But notice, too, also just the, uh, I think there should be an appreciation for how the larger catechism really logically weaves everything together and how Reformed Covenant theology has such a smooth structure to it. I'm not saying there's not you know, difficult parts or nuances or discussion we have. Of course there is. But in your run-of-the-mill Westminsterian covenant theology, um, you know, you have the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. And those two covenants really, uh, I mean, that's what explains the entire Bible. It's the key that unlocks the entire Bible. And, and now you can go to scriptures and see exactly where this plays out. So, for example, it's been mentioned Romans 5, um, Galatians 3.16, right? Now to Abraham and his seed where the promise is made. Uh, he saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. Um, uh, you know, Isaiah 53.10-11, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall uh, see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied by his knowledge. Shall my righteous servant justify many for he shall bear their iniquities. So you look at the proof text right of the catechism and then all of a sudden you go. Oh, that's where they're getting this from. This is clearly something in scripture and I can see the covenant structure here. And so I just wanted to say I have such an appreciation for uh, the standards here and such an appreciation for Westminsterian covenant theology. Derek, um, hopefully I didn't 
and when we were introducing this question, uh, hopefully I didn't lead our listeners to think that the covenant of works wasn't still uh, very much active, because wouldn't you say that that's why the active obedience of Christ matters within the gospel? Yeah, absolutely. That, and no, I don't, I don't think you did that, but um, yeah. I just kind of went on a tangent there on my own, but no, yes, I, that's why the active obedience of Christ is so imperative because Christ is actually undertaking the covenant of works on our behalf, right? It's his personal, perfect and perpetual obedience, which merits salvation for us. And um, he, because we were unable and are unable to be perfectly obedient, Christ in our stead is perfectly obedient, obeying the father and that perfect righteousness is what is imputed to the elect who are members of the covenant of grace by faith. So I'm going yeah. to parrot, I'm going to parrot some JG Voss here uh, because there's two things. We'll kind of circle back to this and say, because in question four on his commentary, he asks, why is it wrong to say that Christ represented the whole human race, right? As the second Adam in the same way that the first Adam did. And, that leads us into sort of the discussions and the debates surrounding limited or uh, indefinite atonement. But to circle back to what Matt had said earlier and how the covenant of grace, you know, we we find it from our creaturely vantage point. We first hear it revealed to us in Genesis 3.15, immediately after the fall. But question five in Voss, he asked, when was the covenant of grace made? It was made in eternity before the creation of the world between God the Father and God the Son, read Ephesians 1.4, the covenant of grace was made before the covenant of works, but it was revealed to mankind after the covenant of works had been broken. So this is why I think Westminster is really stressing, like Derek said, that the covenant is made with Jesus Christ and all the elect in him because this covenant, properly speaking, we find it in eternity past, that this is not something because there's no succession of moments or time to God who exists outside of time. This covenant of grace is made, we could say that, um, eternally, but it's executed in time beginning in Genesis 3.15. And that could only, Voss can only say in question five that it's, made before the creation of the world, if it's made with Christ, God, the son, and then we are sort of caught up in the train of his robe as participants and recipients of those covenantal blessings that he secures on our behalf as our federal head, according to faith. Right. I think you're, you're spot on spin and, and, and try to, you know, trying to bring this, you know, full circle with everything that's being said uh, on this episode Thus far, you know, you can go to Galatians 4, beginning in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Christmas story again, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. Um, you know, just like Derek was saying, uh, you know, Christ at exactly the right time, the Apostle Paul saying, you know, God sent forth his son to put himself under the covenant of works, to put himself under the law so that by his righteousness, by his perfect obedience, his act of obedience, 
and by him dying a sinner's death upon the cross of Calvary, his passive obedience, we might be now received as sons in that covenant of grace. Um, and, and you notice, right, it's, it's again, Paul's not writing to, to just everybody, is he? Um, not all of mankind, but to uh, the elect there in Galatia. And so, yeah, it's it's written out there for us, spelled out there for us by the divines in him with all the elect as his seed. And so, you know, we're not we're not trying to declare some sort of universalism here uh, within our doctrine of faith. We're saying it is for Christ, for Christ's people that he is. Uh, that he has come, that he has put himself under the law, that he has died, that the benefits of his death and resurrection and ascension all apply to now his elect. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's one of those things that you know the we we say you know this is the majority view of the evangelical world that that universalism is is quickly denied, right? But I was listening to uh, Contemporary Christian Radio uh, the other day in my wife's car to my chagrin, and and it said very clearly, you know, the Christmas message is that Jesus Christ came to earth to restore all of his creation. No created person or no created thing uh, would our gracious Lord uh put to judgment or, or, or put to destruction or something along those lines. And I was like, nope, uh, actually he will. Uh, there are vessels of destruction in which he is created and a new heavens and a new earth that he is uh, establishing for his people. And so there will be judgment in Christ because like, those people that are not his elect stand in the covenant of works and they stand guilty uh, like we do apart from Christ. Uh, and so they will, meet the judgment of the Lord rightfully. Yeah, that's good. So if I could just, this is really just going to say everything we've said, but I wanted to kind of sum it up here with a couple of quotes from uh, a book called God to us by Stephen Myers. Um, Stephen Myers, shout out to my good uh, doctoral advisor. Uh, his, his book on covenant theology is very good. And uh, if you're a listener, I highly encourage you to, get it. but he, he's speaking about, um, this passage in the larger catechism and with Romans five and first Corinthians uh, 15. And he says um, that uh, Adam and Christ each are seen as covenant heads operating representatively in a covenant in such a way that their relative obedience or disobedience affects all of those whom they represent. Um, and he says, if you're a Christian, then prior to your regeneration, that covenant of works condemned you but you had never personally entered into the covenant of works. Adam had been entered into it for you. You were in the covenant of works representatively. You were in the covenant because you were an Adam. And so then the parallel is, um, he says, Christ who is in the covenant of grace freely gives to the elect the blessings that he had secured by his obedience within the covenant. Um, and so, and one more thing, he says, just as the covenant of works was made with Adam and with Adam's posterity because they were in him. So the covenant of grace was made with Christ and with the elect because they are in him. And so Christ is a public person, a representative. Um, and I think that's such a good point that, no, we were not, you know, it, OK, in one sense, we were there in the garden, right? Original sin. We were all in Adam in, in, a, in one sense, but it's federally. 
we were not physically present in the garden and uh, God did not speak to us and say, I'm making a covenant with you, but we were in Adam. Therefore we were entered into this covenant and uh, the administration of that covenant. Right. Um, but uh, now that we are in Christ, because we've placed our faith in Christ, we're united to him by faith. Um, then we are entered into this covenant of grace through him, which he perfectly obeys. So that's, um, again, I, I know I don't want to beat a dead horse here, but let me just say this, and we'll get to this um, shortly in the next question. Um, but this is also why understanding Christ as our mediator is very important. All this ties together. Because when we speak about Christ as our mediator, and there's things that go along with that, you know, you can ask the question, what is a mediator? What does he do? Why do we need one? You can also ask why it was necessary for a mediator to be both God and man. And all of that here is important um, and connects with the covenant of grace. So everything is just, honestly, it's logically airtight, right? But it, it helps so much understanding and really brings a fuller, I think, view of our salvation and the work that Christ has done for us. Um, it's not just one thing, you know, yes, he died for sinners, right? But th there's more that goes into our salvation than just Christ's death on the cross. There's a grander scheme, a grander plan of God. Um, so uh, really love this question. Um, Spin, did you have anything you wanted to add or do you want to take us to the next one or? Well, I'll take us to the next one. But before we go, you know, this is, I think, like I'd said, the overwhelming view for many people. And maybe you've heard folks say this in evangelism. Maybe you've said it yourself and I'm not here to bloody anybody's nose. I mean, I've said it myself uh, in my evangelism at points in my Christian uh, walk. I used to say things sort of blanketedly and indiscriminately. Jesus died for you. Jesus died to save you from your sins. And Voss I think counsels us against using that sort of unqualified language. Is it true that Jesus so loved the world that he gave himself, right? So that whoever calls on him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That's absolutely true. But listen to what Voss says, because he traces this reality of the covenant of grace being made with Christ and his elect only, right? And, and, and says how this should affect the way that we speak about salvation and the work of Christ. So he says, if Christ in the covenant of grace represented the whole human race, and we could supply this, if Jesus died for everyone indiscriminately, then the whole human race will be saved. If, if he's truly the savior and died for everyone, then everyone should be saved. But the Bible teaches that only part of the human race will be saved. So if we say that Christ represented everybody, then we will have to say that Christ does not really save anybody, but only gives everybody a chance to be saved. And it is up to each person to take it or leave it. So Jesus is a, an equal opportunity, possibly savior. Uh, this is a very common belief today, but the Bible is against it. Christ did not suffer and die to give everybody or anybody a chance to be saved. And, and I love this. He suffered and died to accomplish the salvation of the elect. Jesus doesn't just make our salvation possible. He makes it certain for all those who look to him in faith. So that's that's the last thing I wanted to say on 31. Derek, why don't you, with your 
your sweet Catoosa County voice, read us question 32 and, and take us into this next question. Yeah, we really just want you to read it because you're more accustomed to reading in the in the authorized version of the King James English. <laughs> you know, people probably think that I'm King James only. I'm actually not, um, but I'm close. Uh, question 32 of the Westminster Larger Catechism asks, how is the grace of God manifested in the second covenant? Answer, the grace of God is manifested in the second covenant in that he freely provideth and offereth to sinners a mediator and life and salvation by him and requiring faith as the condition to interest them in him, promiseth and giveth his Holy Spirit to all his elect to work in them that faith with all other saving graces and to enable them unto all holy obedience as the evidence of the truth of their faith and thankfulness to God and as the way which he hath appointed them to salvation. There is a lot there, fellas, in that answer that and uh, honestly, I almost feel like each clause or each section in that answer could really be its own um, its own episode because there's so much there. There's even a few controversial things in there. Um, so, Spin, what do you think about that? Grace is throughout, you know, amazing grace. We love that hymn uh, by grace. You've brought me safe thus far and my grace you'll lead me home. And so we see that the grace of God is manifested in the covenant of grace, not just at the beginning, that faith and that grace begins our salvation, but it uh, sustains and it completes our salvation. So he who began the good work in you is faithful to bring it to completion until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's only faithful and sure to accomplish and to fulfill that which he began if He's the one from start to finish that's doing the work in us, because if it's left to you and me, if God says, all right, you know, I'm handing you off the ball and now you've got to make it to the goal line. Uh, we're going to either trip for those of you that watch football, the butt fumble, which is that terrible play, you know, or we're going to trip over our own feet or we're going to get sacked. We, we won't make it. But we hear we see here that grace perfumes, it pervades uh, the whole of our salvation, not in part, but the whole of it. So the grace of God is manifested in the second covenant and that he freely provideth and offereth to sinners a mediator. There are no conditions. There's there's no work. Well, Derek's uh, eyebrows uh, cocked up there. I'm going to circle back to that. Uh, in one sense, God's grace to us, we're elected upon an unconditional basis. We do believe in unconditional election. It's true. God didn't foresee that we would do anything that would merit his favor. And yet the conditions of entry into the covenant of grace are that we would have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And how is it that we have that faith? It's not our own doing. It is the gift of God. So in one sense, and I want to be very careful here because I have two persnickety systematic theologians uh, in, in the chat. We can't keep the conditions, but there are conditions and they've been kept for us and gifted to us uh, by the grace of God. So the grace of God is manifested in that he provides and offers sinners a mediator and 
anything that needs to be done is not done by us. It's done by Jesus, given as a gift. Here I stand, fellas. Way to you, save it, man. Way to save here it. Here I stand. Matt, it reminds right. me of that quote from uh, Augustine, uh, command what you will, but give what you command. There you go. Man. Yep. And that's that's what's happening here. Why didn't you just say that at the beginning? You would have saved me four minutes of you know blowing hot air and just being on the verge of you charging me with heresy. No, that was such rich gospel proclamation. I'm thankful you you did it. Yeah, you 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 did it well. But I want I want us to I want us to address something, and I'm going to ask the question, and I'm not going to answer it myself because I have I know I have my opinions. Uh, and I think, you know, I, I think I have a good answer for this, but I want to hear you two guys answer it. So how do we harmonize limited atonement that God in human form as the person of Jesus Christ lives and dies for his people, particularly, you know, the elect? How do we harmonize that with the free offer of the gospel that's talked about here? that he freely offers to all sinners a mediator. But we're saying he only gives faith to his elect. So so why do we preach? Why do we do missions? Why do we have the free offer of the gospel? Derek, you're leaning in. I'm calling on you first. Well, I've been asked this question recently. And uh, let me say a couple things about it. There's a couple of answers as to why we would preach, why we would evangelize, why we would send missions, uh, missionaries, if we believe in election and limited atonement. The first answer is because we're commanded to do that. The second answer is we don't know who the elect are. Charles Spurgeon has that great um, quote, and I'll, I'll paraphrase it here, but if God had placed a yellow stripe on the backs of all the elect. He'd spend the rest of his life lifting shirt tails. So God um, doesn't tell us who the elect are. So it's our job to preach the gospel. And in fact, I would say that um, I, I, I liken it. I said this. I think I stole this from somebody. So I'm sorry. Whoever said this originally, good job on you. Um, but we can preach the gospel promiscuously give the gospel to everybody everywhere uh, at all times, right? Whoever will take the gospel, you preach it because God has ordained not only the ends, but the means by which those ends come about. So in God's sovereign decree, he has ordained not only who will be saved, but he has ordained how they will hear and receive that salvation. So we don't want to flatten our, soteriology such that um and be hot what's called hyper calvinist and say well god it's it's as one you know as one popular preacher said well it's just duck duck dam no it's not duck duck dam that's not how this works god has a people he has ordained a people for salvation and he has ordained how those people are to come about. And so we don't have to know who the elect are. We just have to know the gospel and know how to preach and teach the gospel. One more thing on this um, is that, well, maybe a couple things. See, now I'm on a roll. Um, one is also another thing I would say is just that this increases our joy in sanctification 
by proclaiming the gospel, sharing the gospel, and seeing sinners come to know Christ. That actually causes sanctification in us by power of the Holy Spirit because we grow more confident in God. We grow more obedient the more we see God answer these prayers. Um, it causes us great joy to see sinners pulled from the fire. And uh, so it, it really does encourage us in our own sanctification. And so God has chosen to do it that way because his interest is not just how our sins are paid for, but his interest in us is to sanctify us, bring us all the way to glory. And all along the way, him receiving more glory and honor and praise. So the more that we grow in sanctification, the more we see this, the more joy we have in the Lord, um, that is God working salvation in us. He's working sanctification in us until glory. And so God receives all the glory. We receive more of him um, in our communion with him. And so it's just it's just whole system here. So preach the gospel to every creature and see what God does. Lastly, okay, this is really my last thing. I know I've been preaching. This is my last thing. This is such good news to our listeners. It's such good news to every preacher, teacher, missionary, evangelist, or, uh, you know, if you just want to share the gospel with your neighbor, uh, this is really good news. And you might say, how is limited atonement good news? Or how is predestination and election good news? It's good news because it takes the pressure off of us. We don't have to say, um, you know, I got to be really clever or really funny or have a really good gimmick or whatever the case is. I've got to convince somebody to get into heaven. No, you just have to be faithful. It's the Holy Spirit's job to save and sanctify the elect. So you don't have to walk away and go, gosh, I really blew that. I should have been more funny. I should have been uh, quicker. I should have been. And you also don't walk away built up with pride saying they got saved because I'm so smart, because I'm so clever. You know, I heard a story one time about a youth gathering and they brought in the speaker and um, he said, I want everybody in here to repeat after me. And like a thousand kids, they all repeated after him. And he, he did some version of the sinner's prayer. And But he had everybody do it out loud. And after they finished, he snapped his fingers and said, gotcha. You're all in. And he was being serious. Um, okay. You don't have to do blasphemous things like that. You can just be faithful and trust in God. And by the way, trusting in God is also related to your sanctification. All right. I'll quit preaching there, but that's, that's my, that's my thoughts. You know, if you really want to know what I think about it. Well, now that we just, uh, you know, slid open the throat of revivalism uh, there uh, as we ought to, uh, you know, we don't need high emotions or gimmicks or uh, the anxious bench of altar calls to, to see conversions. We just need to preach the gospel. And well, just as I am one more time. One you more, ver the first verse, yeah. one more time. When the piano uh, starts, you come. Yeah. You come. Come on. I, I see every that. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Yeah. Jesus said, uh, if everybody's looking around. You before men, I'll deny you before my father. So you come. <laughs> run up here. Run up here. Um, yeah. 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 While the blue hair old lady plays just as I am. That's right. Um, whoo. We could go. That's a, we could go off some, a lot of rabbit trails there, namely that, our old lady shouldn't have blue hair, but nonetheless, um, 
I, I want to bring up something that Derek mentioned when he was uh, introducing this this question because you know, like he said, there's there's many different layers to this, um, many different things that we need to we need to talk about, and we're going to try to cram it in in the next fifteen minutes or so, I guess. But but this idea of a mediator, right? Why do we need a mediator? Um, who is this mediator even? And in the Apostle Paul in, in, in 1 Timothy 2, uh, I think it's verse 5, uh, says, There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Uh, he is our access to the holiest of holy places. That's, that's the mediator, the intercessor, we might say. Uh, you know, all the way in the Old Testament, constantly there was high priests and priests and all of them were the ones, you know, uh, performing the sacrifices. And the high priest was the one who would go into the holiest of holy places once a year uh, so that he might sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat in the very presence of God for the salvation of sinners. And and all of that now is unnecessary because we have that singular mediator between God and man, the perfect sacrifice, Christ Jesus. The author of Hebrews says, you know, after he ascends on high and presents himself as the sacrificial lamb uh, uh, before the Father in the holiest of holy places, heaven itself, the Father gives him the place of honor, the right hand of, of fellowship. Um, and, and so that is why he is the mediator. We come through Christ uh, to, uh, to the holiest of holy places. We come to Christ, the Son of God, uh, he, is, the Father is only approachable through Him, uh, and so I wanted to to mention that as well. Spin, what else stands out to you here in this question? Well, I love the fact that you know I let the word unconditional slip from my lips last time, but as you were uh, kind of ribbing me and saying condition is in there and requiring faith as the condition to interest in them, I think this is working. Uh, trying to teach us this, not requiring a certain set of obediences or works, but that the simple, uh, we'll call it the open hands of faith that receive the gift of the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ, that that's all that God requires, that that's the only condition. It's not this obedient faith that everybody likes to throw in there and qualify faith. We understand James 2, that faith results in obedience, but it's not faith and obedience side by side or a performative faith, right? It is the simple act of trusting in Jesus Christ as your mediator that makes a person right with God. And there becomes the question, well, how is it that we even have that faith? Is that something that we can pride ourselves upon? You know, can we pat ourselves on the back for digging deep enough and exercising our free and autonomous will better than our neighbor who doesn't believe? This says no. Because it says that grace is manifested in this second covenant to work in them that faith. That is the Holy Spirit. So in our Westminster Shorter Catechism, when it asks, what is faith in Jesus Christ? Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace. It's not a work that we perform. So our salvation is built upon the performance of Jesus Christ, his performing all the duties and requirements of the covenant of works. And in no way do our works factor into that ground of our justification being made right with God. And even after justification, even after being given the gift, 
notice it says, with all other saving graces. So it is the spirit of God who is at work in us, both to will and to do his good pleasure. That's why we would say that our sanctification is also guaranteed. It's not going to be a nice, smooth uh, cruise, right? It's going to be like a battleship between here and heaven. I think that might have been John Piper who used that, that word picture. But we're told here that all the saving graces that a Christian needs between now and arriving at their heavenly home, God is the one who supplies them with these saving graces. And, and he's the one who enables them unto all holy obedience as listen to this, as evidence of truth of their faith and thankfulness to God. So there is a place for works in um, a Christian's life, but it's all flowing downstream from the headwaters of the free grace of God given to us, not earned, but graciously given. And so, yeah, I for those people who try to, you know, say, well, it's begun by grace, but then it's completed by works, sort of like the Galatians who Paul said, who's bewitched you, Galatians? You haven't been begun by the spirit. That's the Holy Spirit. Are you now being completed according to the flesh, according to human endeavor? He's like, that, that's not what I preach to you. That That's not the gospel. And I don't know about y'all, but there's a reason I think we need to keep preaching the gospel both to ourselves and even those saints in the pew in our churches who have been Christians for an awful long time, because we operate on a works principle more often than not. That, that's something that we slip into. And the grace of God is manifested in the totality of our salvation. Uh, it, it shows itself differently in justification. It's this entirely passive reception in sanctification. We're working. You know, but we're only working because he's first at work in us, but it's all grace. And so that really humbles us, causes us to be grateful and thankful. And yeah, I, you can turn over every rock and you'll find grace underneath. Yeah. Oh, well, um, you were talking about preaching the gospel to ourselves. And I was, I actually had the opportunity here recently to, uh, speak to a, a group of uh, local pastors, um, and I decided that something uh, along those lines was something that I was going to speak to because, you know, as ministers, as pastors, all three of us here, you know, we're constantly teaching, we're constantly preaching, we're constantly pouring out, pouring out, pouring out. Um, and I said, you know, it could we can become spiritually dry while we're preaching and teaching gospel truth, uh, living water to the congregations, uh, but we can become spiritually dry. So I was talking about the importance of preaching the gospel to yourself throughout the week. And I was, uh, as I was teaching, I was reminded of that story of Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, of course, was a medical doctor for those of our listeners who didn't know that. Uh, and he felt a call to the ministry and he was called to a little parish church uh, and he was preparing for his first sermon at this little parish church and, and, and his wife, you know, kind of questioning his decision, right. Uh, said, why do you think that you're able, that you're able or, or even capable uh, of preaching to this congregation? And he goes, because I've preached the gospel to myself 
every day. Um, and so I think that's that's so important, uh, Spin. But also I think that, you know, one of the questions that might get asked when we're talking about this sanctification is by God's word and spirit, and it's an action that he is making and 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 that he is enabling us to to be sanctified and he will sanctify us. The good work he started in us will be brought to his completion. Um, you know, all that being said, what is what is our responsibility in our sanctification? And and you touched this, but I want to be, you know, exceptionally clear is that we are called to walk in the ways of righteousness. We are called to mortify sin, to kill it. We are called to take off the old man and and put on the new. Colossians three gives both of those illustrations, and 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 that's difficult. Um, I think it was our our dear friend David Strain. Um, at First Pres Jackson, who, while he was preaching through Colossians three, said something on, along the lines of, uh, "I I want to take my sin for a walk on the beach. I, I want to date it. I want to love it. Um, but but the text in Colossians three says, kill it, kill it. Um, I, you know, I, I think that uh, I've often compared, uh taking off the old and putting on the new with that comfortable pair of shoes, right? Uh, I have a a pair of Kohan penny loafers that I love to wear and the big toes all the way through the sole, uh, you know, they're old and grungy looking, but they are the most comfortable shoe I own. And my wife hates when I pull them out from under the bed and put them on. She's like, just throw them away, throw them away, throw them away. And my, of course my response is no, 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 no. I can't throw them away. I, I love these shoes. That's how we treat our sin. It's comfortable to us. And yet we're told to, to put it off, to, to kill it, to throw those old shoes away uh, and pursue righteousness. Um, and so there is a responsibility on our end. But praise the Lord that uh, we're not left to our own schemes and devices in our sanctification, that God gives us his word to teach us how to live. To, to love God with all of our being and to love our neighbor as ourselves to pursue Christ likeness. And also he gives us his spirit that enables us to do so. The only victory that we have over our sin is God wrought, um, even though we, we are fighting it as well. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I appreciate spin how you brought up that saving graces that enable them unto all holy obedience. It's not an automatic uh, all holy, is it? It's it's not an automatic sanctification that we're perfect, but it's an an ever-progressing, a progressive sanctification where we're becoming more and more like Christ uh, until we reach uh, glory. And so that should cause us to be uh, a thankful people to God, a thankful people to God, thankful for all the things that he's doing for us and in us, uh, especially in regards uh, to the gospel, how he's changed our hearts, replacing our hearts of stone with a heart of flesh, that he's making us new. He, he is making us more like Christ uh, and he is preparing our eternal home where when we are in his presence, we will be like him in every way, holy and blameless. So I think that uh that's going to conclude our time for now, unless Spin or Derek have some concluding thoughts. Um, Spin, you have anything? Nope, nothing from me. Thanks, Matt. It was uh, good to be on the pod today.
All right, and Derek just walked away from his desk, avoiding having to close this episode down. Sorry we cannot have you listen to his beautiful voice once again. But, oh, he's back and unmuted. Go ahead, Derek. I, I spilt fountain pen ink all over my desk. I apologize. So, o- Only the greatest that. use fountain ink pens. What color was it, Derek? For all of our listeners who are now curious. Uh, yeah, so let me actually get it here. It is. Um, I can't even pronounce it. It's some French, but it's dark purple, basically. Ooh, very good. Um, I, I like to call that color. regalia purple, which is the Clemson's purple that they wear on military day. So, Did you just say you know, regalia as regalia? Regalia. That's how we say it here in Dillon, the big city. Oh, that settles it then, I guess. Yeah, it is. So, on behalf of Derek, Steven, Spinning Weber, and myself, we do appreciate you listening to this episode of Larger for Life. When we come back, we'll continue on our journey through the Westminster Larger Catechism. Until then, we'll see you soon. And in the words of our great friend Nick Bullock, bye bye. You have been listening to Larger for Life a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism brought to you by the Blue Ridge Institute and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about this podcast, please visit our website on Podbean at largerforlife.podbean.com where you can subscribe to the show in the podcast platform of your choice and browse past episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow us at Larger for Life Podcast and on Facebook, you can follow us at facebook.com slash largerforlife. Be sure to tune in next time and join us again at Larger for Life.